Pastor Ben read a passage of Scripture but ago from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and that is our, our focus for this morning. If you've not been with us, uh, this is your first time with us today. Uh, we are in the midst of a study of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, nearing the end, we're in chapter 14 today. And uh, frankly, I need to tell you, I made it through one service. I hope I can make it through the second without too many lashes on my back uh, with this uh, very uh, uh, delicate, shall we say, but important uh, passage of Scripture. First uh, Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. I've been serving uh, in Christ's church for over a quarter of a century now. Most of my years of ministry, uh, a blessing, have been in this place. Uh, but I have served in other places as well. And one of the things that I've discovered is that every church uh, has its problems. No matter where you go, every church has some problems. Some have more than others. Uh, some rarely have problems like ours, and, and I'm grateful for that. But it seems that some churches are always having problems. I shared with you a couple of months ago that my brother Barry, who is also a gospel minister in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, the church he is currently serving has gone through some very stormy and difficult waters and have been divided over some issues, uh, uh, which has caused about 300 or more people to leave uh, the church that he's been serving. And that has made uh, uh, life difficult for him. Uh, it's been discouraging, and I've Tried to stay on top of it and pray for him, but encourage him and, and help him as he's gone through these difficult waters. But because the church is made up of imperfect people, people who are sometimes prone to uh, carnal thinking and uh, carnal living, uh, we should not be surprised that churches have their share of problems. Uh, recently, someone told me a story about a fellow who had been marooned on a desert island, and after several years of living alone on that island, he was uh, mercifully rescued. And when his rescuers arrived on the deserted island and came ashore, they noticed that there were three huts on the island. And the rescuers were curious about this, and they asked him, well, what is that hut for? And he said, oh, that's my house. That's where I live. And they said, okay, so what is the second hut over there for? And he said, oh, that's my church. That's where I worship. And they said, oh, okay, well, what's the, the third hut over there for? And he said, well, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> well, um, there are some people who can't even get along with themselves, much less a group of people. And so it's no wonder that churches have their share of problems. Now, it's become clear to us as we've been studying Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that this is a church that is plagued by problems. It had more than its share of problems. And some of the problems that were going on in the church had to do with their public worship. There were some very severe irregularities, shall we say, going on within the church's worshiping life. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, Paul has been addressing the whole issue of spiritual gifts 
And I'll not go back over and repeat all that we've discovered about that. But Paul uh, devotes three chapters to this whole issue of spiritual gifts and their application and exercise within the worshiping assembly in the churches at Corinth. And it's obvious from Paul's writing that the Corinthians were especially confused about the exercise of the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. They practiced this speaking in other languages, and as we shall see in this study, the, the procedure for speaking in tongues, they were violating that, and it had become uh, chaotic and confusing and muddled, and in the process of it all, the, the body of Christ was not being built up, but instead individuals were being built up, and in these verses, Paul talks about bringing order back into their public worship services, particularly in regards to the gift of speaking in tongues and in verses 29 through 35 in our text today, the gift of prophecy or prophesying. Now, remember that Paul has already made it very clear that his desire was not to abolish or prevent the use of these supernatural gifts. That was not his aim, to abolish their use. Rather, he was seeking to regulate the use of these gifts within the context of the public assembly. And so he closes out this subsection of his letter, ending here at chapter 14, with some cautions and some warnings to the members of the church there, uh, and especially to those who might ignore his instruction and, and so he ends with a concluding exhortation on the theme of order. Uh, I know you probably think it's strange, but you already know I'm a, a bit of a, an odd fellow anyways. Uh, but one of my favorite television programs uh, occurs on Sunday nights at 9 o'clock on C-SPAN. It is the rebroadcasting of Prime Minister's Questions on uh, from the British Parliament. Would you admit that you watch it too? Do, does anybody watch it? If you've never seen it, it now they're on hiatus right now in the summertime, but in the fall it'll come back on. I know you can't think that this is entertaining at all. It is absolutely a gas. It really is to watch Prime Minister's questions. It was better when Tony Blair was the Prime Minister than with Prime Minister Brown. Tony Blair was quicker and sharper, and it's just great. I love it. I wish that the U.S. Senate would pick up a few of these habits, because they really, these Brits, they really speak their minds. There's no doubt about how they feel about things, because if, if a speaker's on the floor and speaking, they, they just go, blah, blah, put a corker in it, put a corker in it. There's none of this stuff that you see in the U.S. Senate, you know, my right honorable friend from Colorado. Yeah, the, these Brits, they just let it be known how they feel about particular speeches and legislation and all the rest. But if you watch real closely, the Speaker of the House in British Parliament sits up high on a throne and he has a big robe and a powdered wig. And when things get really out of control, you know what the Speaker of the House says? He says, order, order. <laughs> and I can just envision Paul in his writing here to the Corinthians appealing for order, order. 
Because things had gotten out of control. And the church was not fulfilling its purposes. And the body of Christ was not being built up. And so Paul demands order in the church, uh, first in the use of the speaking in tongues. He says in verse 26, What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction or revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these, when exercised, Paul says, must be done for the strengthening of the church. Now, you need to understand that first century Corinthian worship would have been very different from the typical 21st century worship experience. Whether it be contemporary or traditional or blended, it does not matter. 21st century worship is very different from first century worship. For you see, in first century worship, while there were individuals who facilitated the worship experience, most likely the people who came together for worship were far more participatory in the worship experience than they are in the average contemporary worship service. I mean, in our worship services, you have the opportunity to sing and and to pray and to to read Scripture aloud and to clap for the offering and, and other kinds of things. But... In the first century worship experience, it would have been, it would have called upon the participation of, of every member. But what had happened was that every member kind of came to the worship experience, uh, loaded for bear, ready to share their stuff. And the thing had, be, had gotten out of control. It, it, to bring it into our setting today, even though the choir is on vacation for the summer, it would be like everybody in the choir singing one song, And then lining up all of our musicians here on on the platform, each of them singing their own song, and lining up all of our preacher boys, Ben and Dave and Greg and Keith and, 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 and Colby and all the rest, bringing all the preacher boys up, and each of them preaching a sermon. And every Sunday school teacher in the place coming up here and teaching their lesson. So you have Scott Taylor and Jim McDonald and Bob Hostetler and Jeff Lynch and, and all the other teachers in our assembly. And everybody just speaking out and doing their thing. Can you imagine what that would have been like? It would have been a chaotic mess. What do you think about that? Would you come away from that experience being edified and built up in the Lord? Or would you come away from that experience with a major migraine? Paul says the situation in their worship had become uncontrollable. And you had some singing and some preaching and still others speaking in tongues and others giving prophecy and no wonder, as, in, as Paul says in verse 23, no wonder those that there were some who visited the church that said these people have gone mad. They're absolutely nuts. They're crazy. So Paul says, look, let's bring order back to this. Let all be done for the strengthening of the church. And I find it interesting that in this passage that two different times Paul encourages and calls for silence. In verse 28, verse 34, he calls for silence. The word is a very strong word that means absolute silence. And it's clear that Paul was addressing a couple things that, in his opinion, needed to stop happening in their services. A silence related to gifts. He said, if anyone speaks in a tongue, then two or three, at the very most, should speak. Two's okay, three's okay, but not more. 
and each one should speak in course, in turn. In verse 28, Paul says, And if there is no interpreter, then the speaker, the one who is speaking in an unknown language, the speaker should keep quiet. Absolute silence. Keep quiet in the church. And if this message is just burning in their hearts, and there's no interpreter, then you should just meditate upon it and speak to God. So Paul speaks, first of all, to the matter of speaking in tongues. And then he goes on and he talks about uh, the fact that uh, the gift of prophecy, and he turns his attention to the gift of prophesying in their corporate gatherings. Now, it must be noted, I think, here that the sort of Prophesying that Paul is referring to here is not the equivalent of the kind of prophecy that we see on the lips of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Zechariah in the Old Testament. There's a difference between Old Testament uh, prophetic speaking as recorded in the Old Testament and what some are, are, are calling prophetic utterances. Old Testament prophecy was authoritative. And by its nature, it was binding revelation upon God's people. By contrast, though, New Testament prophecy was of a slightly different nature. It was something that was not automatically to be received as being authoritative and accepted as some sort of binding revelation for God's people for all time. You need to remember that when the Corinthians were gathering together, they did not have the, the advantage that you and I have of having a copy of the, the Scriptures of the New Testament. It was still being written. This letter of Paul's was to ultimately be a part of the canon of Scripture. So when the church assembled together, all they had was the Old Testament prophets and the law. And so being added to this in a dynamic sort of way, being added to this were New Testament prophecies and the apostolic tradition. And people were interpreting that apostolic tradition in their local settings and assemblies. And so Paul's instructions here regarding prophecy demonstrate, I think, the inferior nature of New Testament Prophecy and at the same time responds to the mixed character of New Testament prophecy by giving a guideline. And the guideline is this, that when someone who has the gift of prophecy gets up, just as with tongues, one is okay, two is okay, three is okay, but no more. And then, after these prophetic utterances are given, then there should be a time of weighing or sifting through this. Paul says uh, in verse 29, two or three prophets should speak, and then the others should weigh carefully what is said. Now, this is where people who had the gift of discernment would kick in with their gifts. They would begin to test the spirits, and they would ask, all right, so this person has gotten up and given this prophetic utterance, a, a word to the church, uh, thus saith the Lord. And so now we need to discern, is this binding on the church? What is the Spirit saying to the church? And so those with a gift of, of uh, discernment would determine, yes, this is a word from God, or part of it is a word from God, and part of it is, is self-employed uh, and carnal, or all of it is, is not from God. And it would be weighed or sifted and then become 
revelation to the church. And Paul instructs the Corinthians, and not just the Corinthians, he does it elsewhere to the Thessalonians, to not just accept the prophecy they heard at face value, but to evaluate each prophecy and to hang on to that which is good. So there was this process of speaking the prophetic utterance and then weighing the prophetic utterance. And then those who were wise and spiritual and godly and gifted with discernment would determine, yes, this is a word from God or no, it's not. Now, Paul explains this whole process and and puts some guidelines on there, again, to establish order. And he says in verse 33, the reason I do that is that the God that we worship is a God not of disorder, but a God of peace. Boy, don't you see that in the stamp of God on every part of creation? That He's a God of order? The way He has ordered the created kingdoms of this world, the way He has ordered the various uh, systems of our physical body, our circular system, our skeletal system, our muscular system, it's just amazing to me to think about all the cells that combine together to uh, the molecules that make the cells, that make the tissue, that make up the, the hand, that make up the arm, that make up my body. It's all part of His wonderful, mysterious, majestic order. God is a God of order, not one of disorder. He's a God of peace. And Paul is saying, just as God is ordered... So we in our worship should be ordered. Now, I think there's a word that needs to be spoken here to the church today, and it is this. That we can become so concerned about order in our worship that we drain the spirit and the life out of our worship. And I would say a word to First Alliance. My sense is this, that if we as a body of Christ were to err, in one direction or the other, that our error would be to err on the side of too much order. You might not agree with that, but I think that there is that kind of sense that we like things ordered and proper. And sometimes, wanting order to an extreme degree, can quench the life of the Spirit within within the context of a body of local believers. Now, I know there are some of you thinking, order? That song this morning was order? If you want to see order, Rick, I'll show you order. And granted, there there are many churches and denominations where there's far more order than maybe we have in our typical worship service. The liturgy is organized and and repeated and known and understood. But also, there are some churches where there is great order, but there is absolutely no spirit. You could write over the door of that church, Ichabod, the spirit has left. May it never be true here at First Alliance. May we always seek to do things 
decently and in order and never err on the side of the Corinthian problem. But may our penchant for order not squash the life and the vitality of the Spirit. And so I think that balance is required and needed. And while we are seeking to obey the guideline here for order and decency, we also want to not quench the Spirit. Now in the final uh, words here in chapter 14, and I'm so glad I just have a couple of minutes to deal with this. <laughs> well, God is merciful. Paul gives some specific instructions about women in the church. And look at what he says in the end of verse 33 and going into 34. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. They should remain silent. They are not allowed to speak. So what is Paul saying and what is he meaning and how does this apply to the 21st century contemporary setting? Now, depending on what your interpretation of Paul's instructions are saying here, it, it leaves, I think, Paul looking very much like a man suffering from an extreme form of schizophrenia. Because just a couple of chapters earlier, do you remember it when we were in chapter 11? Paul said in chapter 11 and verse 5, And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So there in chapter 11, he's giving place to women having the opportunity to pray or to prophesy in the church. But a couple of chapters later, he's saying, But in the church, as in all the churches, I am saying to you that women should remain silent. They should not speak. Now, what's interesting, too, is if you look carefully at some of the other letters to the other churches, and particularly to Paul's letter to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, he says in, in, in uh, 1 Timothy, I believe it is, he says that women should not have authority over men. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. That for women to have spiritual authority over men in Paul's estimation, that that was uh, going out of God's design and was out of step with God's design and intention for men and women and the respective roles and relationships in the world and in the church. So Paul's saying here in chapter 14, women should be silent. Well, then if, if we were to obey that then, no woman would ever be able to speak. No woman would be able to... Prophesy. No woman would ever be able to, to pray out loud. No, no woman would ever be able to employ her gifts in the body of Christ. Is that what Paul means? I don't think so. And, and this is not some fancy dancing interpretation of this. I've studied this very, very carefully over several years. And I've never felt comfortable before this day in saying what I truly am convinced Paul is saying here. I think what Paul is saying here is this. That when it comes time for, for the weighing of the prophetic, the New Testament prophecy, when it comes time for that weighing and sifting out, that a woman should remain silent. And the reason that he 
he instructs that a woman should be silent and refrain from that process is that it would be very possible for a woman to step up. A prophetic utterance is given. A woman would be able to step up and, and critique that prophecy and even come against the word that has been spoken. Or possibly even speaking against her husband, which would be totally out of order because of the call to, for a wife to submit willingly, voluntarily to the leadership of her husband. Now, I know that Paul's words here about women ring a strange sound in our 21st century ears. But I don't think that Paul is talking about women in general during community gatherings, uh, not being able to employ their gifts and all, but particularly because of the larger context of the setting is saying when there's a prophetic utterance, women should be silent and let the men who are the leaders of the church determine whether this is binding on the church or not. In light of all this, then, if that's what we accept, and I'm not uh, taking for granted that you accept my interpretation, but in light of all this, what does, what does that mean for the church today? I want to be clearly understood this morning. I am not saying that men are superior and women are inferior. I do not for a moment believe that men are superior to women. They're different. To me, one of the God-given joys of life on this side of glory is the radiant, forever intriguing, complementary difference between a man and a woman. One is not greater and the other lesser. In terms of bearing God's image, there is no difference. Men and women stand before God as equals. Men and women are equal in worth, in value, and dignity. Men and women are equally redeemed and are equally heirs of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But having said that, it seems apparent to me from the text before us and other scriptural texts, at least to my mind, that women are not to teach men or to exercise authority over men in the context of the local church. What does that mean? Well, it means at least this much. That women, even godly women, are not to exercise spiritual authority over men in the local church as a pastor or as an elder. Furthermore, they are not to be in a position of authoritatively teaching the Word of God to men. This means, as I've said at the very least, that a woman may not serve as a pastor or an elder in the local church. This is not, I do not think it is the injunction of a crazed male chauvinist. I believe if you take time to study Paul's rationale for this guideline, you'll discover the two reasons he gives for this teaching. Paul's teaching doesn't have to do with the status of women in the first century. It doesn't have anything to do whether women were rebellious or poorly educated. 
Paul's rationale for this is the order of creation. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, you will discover that God has set up a hierarchy in creation. Adam was created first, and then Eve. And then in the order of the fall, Eve was deceived, and Adam sinned deliberately. And I believe for those reasons that Paul gives, that these are transcultural guidelines. And they apply as much to us at FAC as they did to the Corinthian church in the first century. It is still true that Adam was created first. It is still true that Eve was deceived. By their very nature, these facts do not change. Thus, I think any attempt to explain away this guideline or the one that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 2 on the basis of culture does not hold water and it will not work. You may vociferously disagree. That is your right to do so. But I have come to the conclusion that in the church of Jesus Christ, that God has ordained Along with the order of creation, God has ordained pastors and elders to be men. Now, I know that goes against the flow of culture today. I know that there are many denominations that, that have chosen in their polity and in their structure to welcome sisters into vocations of pastoral ministry. I know many women who are pastors. I'm grateful for their friendship. I'm grateful for their collegial ministry. But I cannot get away from what I believe Scripture teaches. Paul is basing his teaching not on the local situation in Corinth, but I think he is basing his guideline on this on the timeless principles that are laid out in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And we don't have the option of changing these principles in any way. Now, as you can tell by what I'm saying, I believe that this, this stand has all kinds of ramifications about the respective roles of men and women in the local church. They're not small issues. They cut to the core of what we believe as evangelical Christians. But it should also be obvious to you this morning that I profoundly disagree with those who say that the Bible is not clear on this issue. Because I do believe the Bible is very clear. I believe the Bible is crystal clear on this issue. And where the Bible is clear, we ought to be clear. And where the Bible speaks, we ought to line ourselves up with it. If we understand it, that's good. If we don't understand it and it doesn't sync with our logic or our reason... If it's in the Word of God, I believe we are still obligated to obey it. It is the essence of evangelical Christianity that we are people of the book and that the final authority, the rule for faith and practice for the Christian believer is the Word of God. We love the Bible. We believe it. We obey it. We submit ourselves to its teaching. We order our lives, no matter how imperfectly, after its precepts. The Word of God is our guide and our standard and our rule for life. 
I understand full well that what I am sharing this morning is not a popular position nowadays. It's urged upon us that the church revise our view of women because we now live in the 21st century. We are told that we need women pastors and elders because if we don't, people will think that we're narrow-minded, backwater fundamentalists. Or if we don't have women pastors and women elders, we won't attract the right kind of people or that some of our own people will leave us. And while I am concerned about that, while there's a kernel of truth in all of those things, I want to ensure, at least while I have a say in it, along with our other elders, that this church is constantly seeking to be fully biblical, while at the same time being fully relevant to our culture. And it is true that we must minister to our generation. But wherever our practices are not in line with the Scriptures, we need to change them. We cannot give in, saints. We cannot give in to being shaped by our culture. We are to take Christ to the world. We are not to bring the standards of the world into the church. And those who take their cues from the world will not appreciate what I am saying this morning. If some of what I am saying, the truth that I'm sharing, causes some people to regard us as old-fashioned fundamentalists, so be it. We have been called worse things. And I'm calling the church, this church, to reaffirm not only our commitment to the Word of God, but to reaffirm ourselves to the biblical pattern of leadership in the church. One final word. I'm calling upon the men of this church to get on their knees and pray and to ask God forgiveness for forsaking to take their role as leaders in the home and in marriages and in the church. The reason that so many women have been forced to take up leadership roles is because there's been a huge vacuum that has been left because men were either too lazy or too spiritually immature to step up. And it's time for that to stop. It's time for every man in this church who loves God and who is committed to the cause of Christ to step up and take leadership not only in the local church, but in their family and in their workplace and in our communities. And while I call upon godly men to step up, I'm also calling upon godly women to totally capitalize upon and exhaust your potential in Jesus Christ and get involved using your gifts in the church. There are many, many places for you to use your gifts. There, are, If you have the gift of teaching, there are plenty of opportunities for you to teach. You need not stand behind this sacred desk to do it. There are many opportunities to employ your gift. I'm calling upon godly women to fulfill their potential in Jesus Christ and to support the godly men that God has placed in leading our church.
And that as we work together, men and women, equal in value, worth, dignity, and stature before Christ, that we would link our arms in our separate and distinct roles, and as the body of Christ, men and women, boys and girls, and that we would serve the Lord with gusto and support each other and love each other and encourage each other as we serve the Lord together. And I believe with all of my heart that if we do that, that God will bless that church. And I'm hoping He will bless our church in that way. May God help us in that endeavor. Will you stand and let's pray. Lord, we must admit that so much of what Paul has written and what we've talked about and considered this morning is countercultural and in many ways counterintuitive to us. But we know that, Lord, your, your word is, and the precepts contained there are important to the life and the power of your church at work in this world. And so all of us, God, women and men, sisters and brothers, are going to seek to work together using our gifts, doing all things for the glory of God and the edifying of the church, loving one another and supporting each other and encouraging each other and try to follow the model and the paradigm that you've set out in in your inerrant word. We know, Lord, that we will do that uh, at times imperfectly. And so we call upon you in this moment to help us to sort this all out and to consider it together, to understand it, to, to pray for and dialogue with one another. And pray that you'll lead us, Lord, to the perfect application of all of this in the body of Christ here at First Alliance. Thank you for these sisters and brothers. And I pray your blessing on them. And as we go out of this place, that indeed your blessing would rest upon us. And because you are a God of peace, that you will cause your peace to reign in our hearts, not only this day, but all the days of our life. Keep us in your care. And we will give you all praise and glory. In the name of your only Son, Jesus, our Savior.